Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers Festival. Danger Music is the brilliant memoir by Eddie Ayres in which he recounts what it was like to teach the cello to children in Afghanistan. His time in the war-torn country also led to a self-discovery almost too hard to bear. In this session, which was recorded at the 2018 festival, he speaks to Dan Cox. Thank you. Welcome to the 2018 Newcastle Writers' Festival. My name's Dan Cox. It's a pleasure to look after this session. This is called Danger Music. It's with Eddie Ayres, and I'll introduce him soon. Some housekeeping, please make sure your mobile phones are on silent. If you're on Twitter, our social media festival handle is at New Writers Fest. Please use hashtag NWF18. And please take a couple of minutes as well at some point to fill out the festival survey. Don't make it all about parking, please. <laughs> I caught the free bus up for the first time today. I'm still sweaty from the walk. We'll make sure there's about 15 minutes at the end of this session, the end of this hour together for some questions. I have four hours worth of questions for Eddie, but I will take 45 minutes and then give you 15 if that's fair. <laughs> and book signings will take place at the end. Are you happy to do that, Eddie? Yeah, uh, definitely. In the foyer yeah. of the conservatorium. Mm. Eddie Ayres is a musician, a music teacher, a broadcaster and a writer. He was born Emma on the White Cliffs of Dover and began playing violin when he was eight years old. He studied music in Manchester, Berlin and London, played professionally in the UK and Hong Kong before Australia got him in 2003. He was the much-loved presenter on ABC Classic FM for many years and is back on Radio National. He's written two books. Cadence is about his journey by bicycle from England to Hong Kong with only a violin for company. Why? <laughs> and the other book is, of course, the one we're talking about today, Danger Music. It describes his year teaching music in Afghanistan and transitioning from Emma to Eddie just before his 50th birthday. Better late than never, as you say, and you've been quoted as saying, I couldn't imagine being happier. Would you please give a warm Newcastle Writers Festival welcome to Eddie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. I was going to say, why just a violin through Hong Kong? It's, but why Afghanistan? If we're going to talk danger <laughs> music, why Afghanistan? Well, um, first of all, thank you, Dan, and, and thank you all for coming to uh, him hear this talk. Um, so I had gone to Afghanistan before, back at the end or the beginning of uh, 2013, I think I first went to Afghanistan. So I was working on Classic FM and you know, I was quite happy. But to be honest, I was a little bit bored and I kind of needed an adventure. And um, it was one Anzac Day, actually, Anzac Day in uh, 2012. I was um, doing a, a sort of special program for um, Anzac Day and I just thought, oh, it would be interesting to put in, to find out all the places where Australian forces are serving currently put the name of that place and music into Google search and just see what happened. So first place I put in was Kabul. So I put in Kabul music into Google and I immediately came up with all these um, uh, stories, all these uh, newspaper stories about this music school in Afghanistan and I hadn't heard a thing about it. And so I wrote to them and uh, this guy, Dr. Sarmast, who's Afghan-Australian, and um, I wrote to him and, and asked if I could come and do some teaching. Um, and also read a, uh, make a radio documentary, so that's what I did. So I went at the beginning of 2013 and had the most amazing time and fell in love with the kids. I'd always wanted to go to Afghanistan. I mean, I'd always just thought that this place was so different from anything I could imagine. You know, coming from this temperate world of Shropshire. Has, has anybody been to Shropshire? Isn't it beautiful? But how, how unlike Afghanistan, you just couldn't be more different. And um, so anyway, I went and then I went back quite quickly afterwards, about six months after that. And then eventually, once I left the ABC, I was sort of a bit, you know, sort of churning around in my life. And so when you're churning around, what better place to go to than a war zone? I mean, it's highly recommended. You've dedicated the book to Dr. Samast. Yeah. Why is that? How important was he for that year? in Afghanistan? Oh, incredibly important. I mean, the guy in many ways is, is a hero. I mean, there's some things I disagree 
with him about. That's a boss, though, isn't it? Pardon? That's, that's a being a boss. You would agree, oh, well, disagree that's true. with a boss. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, that, yes uh, some larger things as well. Um, but he really, his tenacity and his bravery and just his bloody-mindedness to keep this, first of all, get the music school up. I mean, there had been a music school a long time ago, back in the 60s, 70s. And in fact, he had gone to that music school and he, his dad ran the music school. And then um, his dad died. Um, Dr. Sarmast played the trumpet and he went off to Russia for studies there and stayed in Russia for about 10 years. Eventually came to Australia as a refugee. And uh, then um, when the Taliban were defeated, went back to Afghanistan in about 2005 and started to work towards rebuilding the music school. So, so it was sort of rebuilt from the not quite literal ashes of the old school. We'll yeah. get to the impact the school has had on music, but let's, before we get there, talk about the Taliban's ban on music. What yeah. did that do to the country? Well, um, music is a, a really integral part of, of life in Afghanistan. I think a good way of explaining it um, is to think about sport in this country. You know, even people who can't stand cricket are really deeply involved, I think, in this uh, bull tampering. Isn't that right? You're like, oh, I'm so offended. I mean, I love cricket and I'm so offended anyway, but, you know, people who just don't give a stuff about cricket, there's like, oh, yeah. what, were they, <laughs> yeah. what were they doing? What yeah. were they doing with the ball? Yeah. Um, so if you imagine sport being taken away from our society, you know, even people who don't like sport, I think it would still have a really, really massive impact. And so it's the same taking away music from Afghanistan. So um, when the civil war was going on in the early 90s, um, the Mujahideen were um, quite a lot in control and they banned music in the places where they had control. And then when the Taliban came in, they continued that ban but made it even further. And so Af uh, Kabul is one of those cities where the professions group by district. And so there is literally a musician's district in the town. It's an old part of town. And it was the first place that the Taliban went to when they um, won the civil war back in 96. And they went through the district, they smashed as many instruments as they could, and they banned all the musicians from ever playing or listening to music ever again. All, all music was banned. The only vaguely musical thing you could do was to chant the Quran. And there was a particular type of woman's song accompanied by a drum that for some reason was still allowed. And they went to um, Radio Afghanistan and they smashed all the instruments there. Um, one horrific story, um, the, um, one of the uh, students at the school, a guy called Ahmad, his grandfather was a very famous uh, gilchak player, which is a type of bowed Afghan instrument. And this guy had been recording something in Radio Afghanistan in Kabul and he, uh, was surprised by the Taliban. They came into the studio, they smashed his instrument in front of him, and this man had a heart attack and died right there and then. And his grandson was at the school learning the rhubarb. Um, so music was just ripped from the guts of this people who love music so much. I've never met a people in general who are more musical than the Afghans. And playing inside a group with Afghans playing is the most exhilarating musical experience I've ever had. It, it, they're phenomenal musicians. So yeah. what has that school done for music now? Oh, it's, 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 it really has, it literally has rekindled the flame of Afghan music. Because so what happened was that these musicians who the Taliban forbade from um, playing again, a lot of them um, went overseas, a lot of them went to Pakistan. I write in the book about uh, one guy, a clarinet player, who um, realized that he had to escape. In fact, extraordinarily, uh, just, just a little story, uh, this, this particular guy, he was asked by the Taliban to write a national anthem 
through Afghanistan. But of course, it couldn't be a musical national anthem. And so he basically said, well, I really can't do that, but you can't say no to the Taliban. And so his wife said, you are going to have to leave straight away. And uh, so he did, but he had to take his clarinets with him. He's a great clarinetist. Um, but he thought, well, how can I take them? Because the Taliban were in control of all the checkpoints, especially going into Pakistan. And if you were caught with a musical instrument, it was immediate death. And so what he did was, a very, very clever guy, he thought, well, I'm going to put something in my luggage that is really bad, but isn't as bad as a clarinet. And no, we're not talking a viola. So he <laughs> said, <laughs> he thought, okay, a chessboard, uh, board games are also banned under the Taliban. It's seriously no fun. It's, it's no fun under the Taliban. And um, so he put this big chessboard, got the biggest he, I don't know where he got it from, but anyway, the biggest he could find, put it on top of his luggage. He went with his cousin. Bags were opened at the checkpoint. And um, the Taliban said, what is this? You know that this is forbidden. And um, he was taken off. He gave his bag to his cousin, who didn't know that there were clarinets in the bag, which was a bit naughty. The cousin went over the border. The clarinets got safely over the border. And this guy eventually went over the border. So the thing is that there was this massive diaspora of, um, of Afghan instrumentalists who spread all around the world. And the only ones who stayed, they weren't allowed to play. And so, you know, if you can't practice as a musician, your standard goes down, you begin to forget. And the ones who did um, continue to play in, in secret, I mean, they're so incredibly brave. Also because it's an oral tradition, and so it's, none of it's written down. You know, what would happen now if Beethoven 5, suddenly we didn't have any copies? There wouldn't be that many people who could play through the viola part from memory. I mean, there might be some people, but, you know, there'd probably be a little bit that would be changed from that. So the school literally rekindled all of that. Yeah. You brought it up, so let's go there. Viola versus violin. I want you to <laughs> describe for me, especially with those kids that you worked yeah. with, the great moment, you call it, of instrument choosing. Oh, yes. Well, um, Jennifer, uh, my uh, dear friend who I worked with in Afghanistan, she's an American violin teacher. And um, Jennifer described this moment of instrument choosing like... Um, the uh, choosing, what, what is it, the hat in Harry Potter? You know, where they're chosen, which house they're in, is cho it's chosen for them. But the difference with this is that the kids choose for themselves what instrument they're going to play. And so my very first day when I got uh, finally to Afghanistan to uh, work there full time, um, the very first day, all these kids were sitting up in the library and... Um, Dr. Salmas sat at the front and he read their name out one by one and they stood up and in the English said, my name's Muhammad, I want to play the rhubarb. My name's Shahed, I want to play the viola. Now Shahed is a 10-year-old Afghan kid who's grown up in the middle of a lot of war and not a lot of TV and Western influence and he knew what a viola was. I mean, I don't think there's going to be that many Australian kids who would know what a viola is, mm. to be honest. Mm. Go home today and find a 10-year-old child. And <laughs> do you know what a viola is? Um, I always have to explain, having to explain what a viola is. Does anybody here not know what a viola is? Don't, don't feel ashamed. There's one up it's the It's completely fine. <laughs> it's, it's like a violin, but it's a little bit bigger and it's lower. So it's, um, it's like a mezzo-soprano or like a contralto voice to the soprano voice. So your arm, you need to play it like this rather than like this. And it's silvery and chocolatey. It's a wonderful instrument. Is it a standard yeah. violin versus viola, ugly older sister, <laughs> painful cousin no, relationship? Uh, no, Is that it's, a... it's completely different. I mean, the, the violin plays the tune. Yeah. Well, unless you're the second violin. Yeah. Um, and the viola plays all the intricate stuff inside the tune that allows the tune to soar. So I, I like to think that viola players, we're the engine rooms of the orchestra. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit. Nearly 10 years of presenting on ABC Classic FM, yeah. and you say you began to lose your concept of joy. You talked about yeah. also sort of losing your way. Let's talk about the movie that changed your life. Ah, uh, yes. Well, so um, one thing that I did uh, when I was uh, female-bodied back in 99, 2000, um, 
I'd been playing for nearly a decade in the Hong Kong Phil, playing viola, and um, I just thought that I needed to get out and see a little bit more of the world. You know, I'd gone straight from school to music college, straight into work, and had never really taken... Via that... three countries, but anyway, yeah, yes. Well, yeah, <laughs> but it had never really sort of taken that time yeah. to, you know, work out who I was. And so I thought, right, I'm going to ride a, my bicycle from England to Hong Kong. So that's what I did, and I took a violin with me, because it's smaller and lighter. I took a little three-quarter size violin, and a little miniature score of the Bach violin, solo violin works. Um, and uh, I'd, was, I'd made my way across Europe, across Iran, had a wonderful time. Iran, I'd had to present really as, as female, um, because, you know, that's the law. Um, and I didn't want to get thrown into an Iran jail. And then I got to Pakistan and threw my headscarf off, because it's not the law there that women have to wear headscarves. And um, I dressed in male clothes and uh, started cycling my way up Pakistan. And the amazing thing about the Pakistan is, first of all, it's the most wonderful country. And if you do want to go to Pakistan, I really recommend it. I, I love Pakistan so much. Um, and they're incredibly hospitable. But they also, I think, many, in many ways um, in the villages, you know, don't have any idea of what Western culture is like and, and what a Western woman would be doing. And so I went, when I went in, you know, I was dressed in men's clothes. I did have very short hair and, you know, I've always been very androgynous looking. And, uh, and they asked me my name. What is your good name? They'd say, and I'd say Emma, but they didn't hear Emma. They heard Emmet, which is a Pakistani male name. And so I was taken Perfect. into the male sides of houses all the time. You know, I was taken in, I was taken into the male side of the house. I spoke to the fathers, the brothers, the uncles, all the time, nobody suspected anything. I mean, I was very thin, and I always had quite small breasts, so, you know, it was never, it wasn't like I was a sort of a double D and saying I was Emmett. No, I, was, I didn't have that issue. And um, so anyway, I began to feel this great sense of sort of happiness and completeness, and I just thought, well, it's because I'm riding my bike, and I'm in Pakistan, and, you know, it's super cool. And, um, and then I got to Multan, and um, I was cycling in very, very hot weather, 50-degree weather. And um, I got to Multan, and I just thought, I need to check out of Pakistan just for, just for an afternoon and a night. So I signed into a really nice five-star hotel. Because previous to this, I've been staying in like one and two dollar hotels. And um, so I went, went to this hotel and uh, went up to my room, ordered a burger and Coke, and switched on the TV. They had star movies, checked to see what's on the movies. And there was this uh, film called Boys Don't Cry with Hilary Swank. Hilary Swank, great, love Hilary Swank. And um, I don't know, I thought it was a movie about lesbian something. Started to watch it. And then I began to get a grip of the story. And so the story is, it's a true story of a uh, man who was called Brandon Tina, but was born Tina Brandon. And uh, Brandon Tina was a, a female to male transgender man, like, like me. Um, and he uh, had a relationship with a woman in this small town in, in uh, Midwest America. And um, he was found out to be female-bodied. And uh, two men in the town raped him and murdered him. And it's the most amazing film. If you haven't seen this film, I, I recommend it so highly. And Hilary Swank did an incredible job, just amazing. And so I was watching this film and you know, up to this point, I, when I was 14, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm a lesbian. And, you know, that wasn't a sort of happy realization, to be honest, back in the early 80s. And um, I'd always thought that I was lesbian, that I be began to be very interested in transgender stuff, but had never really accepted it in myself. And I watched this film, and that, on top of the previous month, having been treated like a man every single day, throughout the day, um, it just meant that I finally really accepted, oh, fuck, I'm transgender. And let me tell you, when you realize you're transgender, well, for me, it is not a happy moment. Because you describe it as yeah, life-destroying. Yeah, because Why? you, well, you realize that to transition is such a mammoth thing. I mean, I can't, almost can't imagine anything more mammoth, perhaps, you know, living in a war zone and 
having, having to leave your country, that's, that's obviously pretty mammoth. But um, that th fear of losing everything and, you know, who would give me a job? What would, who would be my friends? Um, what would my relationships be like? And, and ultimately, what would my mum say? Um, I just thought, I, I just can't go through with it. And so for the next 15 years, I basically suppressed it. 15? Yeah. What yeah. did mum say when you <laughs> finally did something about it? Well, so, so eventually, you know, suppressing it, it just became this real nightmare. So in the end, 2014 was my, my sort of year of, of terror, really. And um, that's why I left the radio. I just became too depressed to work. And um, the management at the ABC were uh, shocking, I have to say, with the way that they dealt with the whole thing. And I took a month off work, and uh, they just said, well, we don't want you back. And so that's why I kind of left in such a quick way. Um, so I then started to see a therapist, and she helped me through some stuff. And, she was pretty um, important. You've brushed over it there, but she was pretty important. Oh, she was young. great. This uh, therapist called uh, Dr. Adrian Margarian. If you're ever looking for a therapist, she's just down in Sydney. She's so great. In Does Annandale. she specialise in transgender? Is no, she doesn't, but she has a, a strong interest in, yeah. in gender stuff. And so she was um, important. There were a few things you did along the way. Yeah, there? that's right. So I, I, you know, I'd, I had these three months off as my contract was paid out. And, um, and then I applied for this job in, in Afghanistan. And then living in this very binary society, um, it just then all these feelings of being transgender just came up like this massive tsunami. And I began to feel very depressed again and was very concerned about it. And um, contacted Dr. Margarian again, and we started to have Skype, um, uh, Skype calls and consultations. And at the same time, I, I just, I've, I really, I realized that I had to do something about being transgender. Because I think one of the things that it's important to know about being trans is that first of all, you realize you're trans then you accept your trans, and then you may make the decision whether to go through with doing anything about it. That it's not, you don't decide whether you're trans or not. And there's a, a little bit of a confusion, I think, sometimes. It's like John Howard. Do you remember that time when he said that being gay was a lifestyle choice? I mean, how shocking. <laughs> Bastard. Um, <laughs> sorry, John, I know, I know you're probably listening. Um, Anyway, it's the same thing with trans. Being, being gay isn't a choice, you just are. Being trans isn't a choice, you just are. And, um, and so I finally decided that I would do something about it. And so I called uh, a, a woman who was a, a very good friend at the time, um, Carol, or Charlie as I know her. And she said, oh, well, I know exactly who you need to talk to. And she lives in Brisbane. And so at Christmas that year, I went back and I had a consultation with a doctor there, Dr. Behrman in Brisbane. And the first thing she said to me as I walked in was she said, so being androgynous isn't enough for you anymore. And it was actually a really interesting and, and very on the money comment. Because it's true, up to that point in Australia, I had managed to sort of live this middle road of, of genders. You know, I could wander into a man's toilet and nobody would really care. I'd wander into a woman's loo and a lot of the time women would go, you're in the wrong loo. And then I'd be able to go, no, I'm not. And I'd point at my not very big boobs <laughs> and they'd go, oh, sorry. Um, and so sometimes I'd be called male, sometimes I'd be called female, but it didn't sort of matter. But then living in Afghanistan where I was forced to be on the female side of things, it made me realize that I was really on the wrong side. Tell us about the envy you felt of Afghan men. Yeah, huge amount of envy. I mean, look, I would imagine that a lot of women feel envy towards men in Afghanistan because there is, you know, so much more freedom because in the very traditional uh, way of life there, still women are very much kept indoors. You know, you're married at a very young age, as young as 16, maybe even younger in the villages. Um, there are some women who go to university, but that's often more the middle classes. When you are married, you're then very much confined to your house. You just have baby after baby after baby. And, you know, you don't have this freedom. And, and the men would wander around in their T-shirts and their jeans. 
you know, they'd be laughing and just having this cool time on the streets, drinking tea, you know, just, just going about their life, it seemed. And I'd just be looking at them and just so jealous. I mean, jealousy is a terrible feeling, isn't it? And I was so deeply jealous of them, of their bodies, of their beard. I'm a bit jealous of your beard, actually, Dan. <laughs> You mentioned in the book that you do love a good beard, and I went to yeah. trim mine this morning for you. <laughs> I started work a bit early. I thought I'd just reduce it for you because I had a feeling you'd be jealous. <laughs> I am. Yeah, mine's coming on, but it's, oh, it's, it's a long coming way along. To go. It's lovely. I can oh, see it from here. Thanks. You're very nice. No. Thank you. That's, you know how to speak to a trans guy. Thank you. Yeah. Moving to a war zone was better than living with what was in your head. That mm. is an incredible statement mm. that you write in the book. How low? did it get for you before you did something about it? Yeah, terribly low. I mean, really suicidal. I, I lied to my, um, to my therapist. You know, she, she said, are you having suicidal thoughts? And I just said, no, in a, you know, a sort of very high and uh, very untrustworthy voice. And look, she's such a good therapist. I'm sure she knew, um, but she, I think, probably trusted me to tell her when I was really, you know, really, really bad. But yeah, I was, I was thinking suicidal thoughts every day. Um, luckily, I hadn't come up with a good way to do it. But um, yeah, terrible. I mean, you know, most of my friends didn't, you know, just stop coming to see me. Um, my relationship collapsed. I mean, it was, I was horrible. I was, it would have been awful to be with. I mean, being around depressed people is, is very hard, isn't it? because they kind of suck everything in into this black vortex and you just don't know what to do with them. And I didn't know what I, what I wanted as well. Yeah. So, 15 years of deciding not to do anything, how important yeah. was one year in Afghanistan to get the yeah, ball moving? Yeah, look, look huge. I mean, I think that it really did accelerate. You know, people have asked me before, how much sooner did you transition because of Afghanistan? And I think, yeah, I think, I think I probably, it did accelerate the process, actually. Not that I recommend if you think you're trans. <laughs> Off I to Afghanistan. Yeah, that's right. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. But, um, yeah. What did mum say? Look, my sister is amazing. I mean, I am so lucky to have these incredible people in my life. Um, when I had told Liz many years earlier that I, I thought that I was trans, and she had been incredibly supportive and said at the time, Whenever you need to talk about it, anything you need to do, I'll be there for you. And so I said to Liz, look, I've decided that I'm going to transition. And, um, and we talked about mum, and, um, and Liz said, I think it's better that we tell her sooner rather than later. And um, the internet in Afghanistan wasn't great, quite um, unreliable. And, uh, and Liz said, look, I'll go round and I'll tell mum I'll explain to her, first of all, what transgender is. You know, my mum's nearly 84. Um, my mum and dad met to the young conservatives, you know, back in the 50s. Who knows what she actually knows about trans stuff? And um, so Liz would explain to her about trans stuff. She'd tell mum that I'm trans, and then they'd call me afterwards, depending on how it went. <laughs> so um, I sat at home with uh, Jennifer, my very good friend, and Camillo, who's a Colombian percussionist who I also live with, just in this regular house in the middle of Kabul. And we sat and we waited and we were drinking whiskey and just, you know, I was so nervous and worried as well. You know, I mean, it's obviously it's a major, major thing for a parent to find out that their kid is trans, no matter how well they take it. Anyway, finally, I got a FaceTime call from Liz and, um, and it was mum on the phone. And um, the first thing that my, so my family name is Binks. So the first thing my mum said was, oh, Binks, why didn't you say something before? You must have been in such pain. So yeah, how incredible. And if only I had trusted my mum enough, you know, back in 2000 when I first realized I was trans, for her to, if only I trusted for her to have that reaction that I trusted, how do I, you know, you know what I mean, that I'd known my mum well enough, because she would have always had that reaction, you know, I'm her child. She would have never been horrible to me, but it, so it's my fault, and I feel bad about that. But, you know, 
all good things happen in the right time, I think. so. Binks is yeah. fabulously gender neutral for a nickname. Yes, it is, yeah. Didn't need to change that. No, so I, I talk to my mum regularly and, and it's hilarious. You know, she's just, she had a stroke last year. I mean, she's, she's great. I mean, she's back doing cryptic crosswords, but, you know, still her short-term memory isn't great. And, um, and so when I speak to her, she says, oh, Emma, oh, Binks, oh, Eddie. And so we run through <laughs> the three names. <laughs> she gets there. She always gets there in the end. Yeah. Eddie, how important for you, because it's different for everybody, how important mm. was your new chest? Oh, my God, I love my new chest. I just, I love it. Thank you, Dan. You just... Great. It's a great chest. Yeah. Oh, no, I was meaning oh. that you're great. Oh. Um, look, um, so when I, went to, um, when I went to see Dr. Behrman, we discussed uh, treatment options. And a more common way is to start to take testosterone and then the muscles build up and then you eventually have chest surgery so that you've got the pec muscles so that where the surgeon, surgeon can see where they do the incisions. Um, but she said, look, for you, it's possible, because um, I was reasonably fit, I've been doing a lot of yoga, weight training, um, you, it, you, it's possible that you could have chest surgery first and then take testosterone a little bit later when you've finished working in Afghanistan. So anyway, it all just absolutely fell into place really well. There's an amazing surgeon in Brisbane who is a, a chest specialist surgeon and is getting a lot of work now um, doing people like me, uh, female to males. A, a spot came up at a time when there was a bit of a holiday in Afghanistan over the Eid there. I got time off and Charlie, Carol, my friend, offered to look after me. Um, Charlie is uh, an ex-midwife, a retired midwife. And, you know, it's obviously major surgery. It's a mastectomy with nipple reconstruction. Oh, here's the thing. Okay, so did you know... This is not in the book. That, no, did you, did you know that women's nipples, women, identify, or female-bodied people, I should say, identify where your nipples are. But go ahead, come on, do it, do it. <laughs> they're, in, they're in the middle of your chest, right? Okay. I'm disappointed that not more of you are going like this. <laughs> and now men identify where your nipples are. They're to the, thank to the you, side? men. They're to the side, right? And so it's very important for the look of a male chest that the... They change it. That it's not just simply diminished, you know, it's not yeah, just Because otherwise the nipples would just be... That's right, you would actually end up looking perhaps a little odd. And so the nipples have to be cut off and repositioned. Wow. And my surgeon was so amazing that she did that with my nipples, repositioned them, and I've still got feeling in my nipples. Wow. I mean, how amazing is that? Yeah. So chest surgery, Dr. Elise Saylor, her name is. <laughs> It's not on Medicare, I hasten to add. Anyway, so, so Charlie looked after me, and it was it, during that time that, um, that we actually realized that we were, we were perfect for each other. You know, I, I, was, I was recuperating for two months, and Charlie, Charlie's here. Charlie's at the back. here today, yeah. They wave, Charlie. Charlie. There she is. <laughs> and, and Charlie, you know, cared for me, yes. She deserves it. <laughs> Yeah, so it was amazing, and it was during that time that, um, you know, my relationship had fallen apart a long, long time before I went to Afghanistan, and, and I used this time to really think about what I wanted from a partner and where things had gone wrong. And I realized, you know, I was spending all this time with Charlie, and I realized, oh, my perfect partner's right here. Wow. Actually, unfortunately, Just she... Just had to talk her into it. Yeah, well, yes. I, I think she feels the same way. Yes. <laughs> Before we move on from the gender dysphoria, you talk about the cello being a metaphor. Describe that for us. You used the cello, yeah. the strings being out of tune, etc. Oh, yes, that's right. I think, yeah, thank you. I think um, for me, being trans and, and living for nearly 50 years in a female body, that it was like trying to play a tune on an instrument that is out of tune. And so you can work out ways of doing it, but it has to be, it, it takes a lot of effort. Nothing really sings, nothing vibrates properly because the instrument is out of tune with itself. It's so much harder than when the instrument is in, is in tune. You don't know, there's no sense of predictability. And in the end, you kind of, you just don't want to do it because the final result is just is so deeply unsatisfactory. 
And so finally, you know, as testosterone started to have its effects on my body after a few months, it really, it really was this feeling of my, my instrument, you know, my body starting to be in tune. And it was just this incredible feeling. Wow. Yeah. Back to Afghanistan, I want to talk about some of the students. Yeah. Atesh, you yeah. say, is the one that loved music that you loved the mm. most. Mm. And he believed he could do a lot through his music. Tell me about yeah. Atesh. So Atesh was um, a young, uh, he, he'd been 19 now, and the most outrageously talented young chap, and very, very clever. He had um, parents who had gone to Pakistan uh, when the Taliban took over, and they'd gone as refugees to Pakistan. They were both so poor that they had had to leave Artesh in a refugee camp because they knew that he would be properly fed, whilst they went out and tried to make money. They would come back and visit him often, so they maintained a relationship with him. But he lived in a refugee camp, I think, for about five or six years, until his parents had you know, made jobs and enough money to be able to provide a stable environment for Artesh, and eventually his younger sister. So he um, essentially grew up in Pakistan, and, and fortunately for him also grew up in the Pakistan education system and the English medium system. So he spoke excellent English, really just such pucker English. And um, he had uh, come back to Afghanistan, um, I can't remember what year, but maybe sort of 2005 or so. And um, no, a little bit after that. And he'd come back and he had watched the film The Piano and he fell in love with the piano and his dad managed to um, buy him a keyboard, I think. And then he heard about this music school and he taught himself the piano. He came to the music school, persuaded Dr. Sarmas to let him in, which was difficult because you usually were only let in at grade four or five. And at this point, Artesh was about grade seven or eight. So he'd had to do all this study to get himself up to speed. And he'd come in and I have never had a student who had such intense curiosity, curiosity about everything. He Not just, just music. No, absolutely everything. And we would sit at lunchtime and you know, I'd spend an hour with him. I'd be eating my lunch. Artesh would come into my room and he'd just ask me endless questions. We'd just start on one point and it would be this rabbit warren of knowledge and sometimes I was amazed at what he knew. Sometimes I was amazed at what he didn't know. Like, teacher, what is this jazz? Mm. And, and you just think, oh, yeah, of course. He's, he's Afghan. He, d he doesn't know what jazz is. Why would he know what jazz is? You did yeah. a little bit of incorporating with the Afghan stuff as well, didn't yeah. you? They, they learned to play Western instruments in their Afghan music, etc. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, yeah, we did some awesome stuff. Uh, Mamma Mia. Abba's Mamma Mia. So from Bach to Abba, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Oh my gosh. Um, I think that might be on YouTube, actually. If you Google Mamma Mia and Anim, A-N-I-M, -A I've got a feeling that's on YouTube. And where uh, those, those kids, they just knock the socks off Abba. They really do. Yeah. You've told us about Atesh. The kids yeah. fall in love with you. You fall in love with yeah. them. We'll let you read more about the other students. Yeah. How hard was your decision to look them in the eye and say... I'm going home. Yeah, look, it, it was incredibly difficult. Um, something that I write about in the, in the book, which I won't go fully into here, but um, there was uh, one, a female student who was treated so badly, and this was one of my major disagreements with Dr. Sarmast. I feel that her rights were not looked after properly by Dr. Sarmast, by other people at the school, and very much by the different students as well, both, both girls and boys. Um, it was such a horrific thing that happened that it made me realize that I would never understand the culture no matter how long I stayed there, and that I needed to come home and be in my own culture, be here and transition, because at this point I'd had my chest surgery, I'd gone back to Afghanistan about this time last year, in fact, in fact, it's Charlie's and my anniversary today. Yeah, happy um, anniversary. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so, You've rented so, a crowd. <laughs> thank you. Celebrate. Yeah, so nearly two years ago, um, I went back to Afghanistan, and very quickly this intense and awful thing happened. And I just thought, I cannot stay here. This is not my culture. This culture has got such a long way to change. And I need to come back here. There are kids here who need to be taught. You know, you can only teach one kid at a time, and every kid deserves lessons. There's, you know, kids in Australia are no less important than kids in, in a war zone. And so I decided that I would come back. But yes, it was incredibly hard, incredibly hard. Um, also, because, of course, I couldn't talk about the whole transgender aspect of it. You know, I would just... I played such a big part, but you couldn't mention it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. I said it was for health reasons. Wow. Yeah. Which is true. And, and, of course, you know, people knew about my chest surgery and everybody assumed that I had cancer. And so I was busy trying to tell people I'm, I'm okay, I don't have cancer. But, you know, in a, in a way, at some level, they just didn't believe me. Yeah. So it was, kids, it was terrible. The kids got so mm. much out of your year with them, but you say you gained more than you gave. What yeah. did you gain? Well, this incredible self-acceptance and uh, a very, very deep self-knowledge. I mean, there's nothing like um, teaching a group of kids when a bomb goes off very close by. You know, that really galvanizes a sense of self and uh, whether you're going to be brave or not. And fortunately, I was brave at the time. I mean, I don't know whether I'd be brave again. You know, if a bomb went off right now, I'd probably curl into a fetal position, to be honest. Um, so, so that was a wonderful thing. A sense of fun in the face of danger. I think that was an important knowledge that I could, you know, have a laugh and bring a sense of ridiculousness to an often very, very tense situation. Um, a keen sense of morality, perhaps too keen for Afghanistan. A keen sense of Western morality, I think perhaps I should rephrase that. Because, you know, morality is different everywhere, isn't it? Um, and um, a, a very deep love for my family and wanting to go back to them. I mean, even though they're in England, um, wanting to be back in a place where I could be closer to them. And Charlie, you know, I, I gained Charlie from that year, which I don't think would have necessarily happened quite so quickly. Wow. Yeah. And, and also a teaching ability. Yeah, I mean, you I learned a lot. Yet. No, I had. I taught a lot, but not that intensely. Mm -hmm. I mean, six hours, uh, sorry, uh, 10 or 11 hours a day, six days a week. Mm -hmm. um, it was some intense teaching. Yeah. yeah. And the ability to teach without necessarily sharing a common language. There is that. We haven't even yeah. touched on your new language of Dari, I believe. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. not very strong nowadays, but at the time it was not too bad. Yeah. I have three hours worth more questions, but I promised yeah. you 15 minutes. Do we have some questions from the floor? We've got some microphones on the side. First up, down the front here, please. Thank you. Eddie, I'd like to know how you got back into the ABC. <laughs> oh, are you complaining? <laughs> no! <laughs> it sounds like, how on earth did yeah. they let, why on earth did they let you back in? I missed you. I missed you so much on FM, and now I know why you left so quickly. Yeah. But, and you know, oh, no, that's, that's very kind of you. Sorry, I didn't mean to make fun. No, Sorry. no. You're not I don't offended, mind. are you? No. Okay, and good. it's great that you're back on. But I didn't no, recognise your voice. Look, I didn't believe you. It, it's wonderful. Thank you. It's, it is wonderful to be back on radio. Um, I did, I mean, I've always loved radio, and, I, and the reason I love it is for the audience. You know, the, that uh, communication with the audience was always endlessly fascinating and, um, and very edu educational and very moving often as well. You know, people told me the most amazing things and, uh, and did the most amazing things. So I really wanted to get back on the radio. And when I came back to Australia and there was that Good Weekend article about me, um, I don't know if you remember that, sort of about a year and a half ago or whatever. Um, at that time, I contacted the radio bosses and said, you know, I was keen to come back. And, and nothing happened at the time. But then a year later, I was contacted by the head of Radio National, who's left now, Deb Levitt, her name is. And um, she said that they were rejigging the arts coverage and was I interested in maybe doing something? And so she offered me either books or visual arts. And so I thought, there's no way I'm going to be reading books all week. I'm definitely visual arts. It's a lot quicker to look at a painting than read through a whole book. 
um, being lazy at heart. And so... Meanwhile, um, radio show about visual art. I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. I liked the challenge of that as well. I mean, I do actually think that radio is a very visual medium. I, I really strongly believe that. And so, yeah, so they offer me this gig. And so I work now, the show is on air one day a week, Wednesdays at 10 a.m., podcastable. You can listen via the ABC app. <laughs> uh, what else do I need to say? I think that's probably enough. Um, please subscribe on iTunes. And um, yeah, so I work two days a week doing that with a wonderful producer in, in Brisbane. And then I teach uh, sort of two and a half days a week as well. And that's enough to uh, keep me out of harm's way. Yeah. Another question? The middle there? Eddie, like Dan, I think we could sit here for hours and hours and just uh, there's so much richness in your life. But the question I have is with the recency of the transition, it fills such a big space in the conversation. Like it, 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 today, we talked about that a lot. And is there a time, do you find it fills too much space in, in terms of people questioning you and talking to you? And will there be a time when that... Uh, are you looking forward to a time when that space is reduced and the richness of the rest of your life fills it ah. up again? Yeah, look, um, thank you. Thank you very much for that question. Um, I'm so happy to talk about transgender stuff simply because I think it's really important that people know about it. And um, I think a lot of transgender people, um, I think often the experience is relatively traumatic and people aren't that happy about talking about it. And so I think it's, for me, I'm very happy to be a spokesman for transgender stuff and to just basically be as educative, educational, whatever the word is, as possible. And as long as people want to know about that, I'm so fine about that. And in terms of sort of thinking about it for myself, you know, initially when I started taking testosterone, and Charlie will attest to this, I was obsessing, you know, every day I was looking in the beard, in, in the mirror going, do I have a beard yet? So you're you know, a typical male. Perfect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I do that. Flexing my muscles. Uh, I think my muscles have got bigger. <laughs> you know, everything. In fact, you know, many times per day, I was obsessing about it, thinking about it all the time. You know, Googling stuff. There's so much stuff on the internet about it. Um, but, you know, that's just lessened and lessened. And I've been taking testosterone now for a, um, about a year and eight months. Um, <laughs> it's very specific. It, it is very specific. <laughs> which it, uh, it's, but I think that will become less specific. And certainly it's something that I don't think about now every day. You know, I just go about my business and don't sort of wake up and go, and go oh, yeah, I remember I'm transitioning. You know, it's just it's something that you just kind of do. Um, and so I think that that may be the thing with me. You know, I think it's like, you know, like Kate McGregor, Catherine McGregor, the great uh, cricket commentator, that she's now known as a cricket commentator. Mm. And, and how great. Mm. And when she needs to, she talks about trans stuff. But a lot of the time she doesn't need to. There's more to talk about and more shocking things to talk about. Ball tampering. In critic, cricket. <laughs> yeah. It's, in a way, they're both about bull tampering. Um, oh, sorry, that was a very bad joke. Sorry about that. Somebody had to make it, right? Anyway, we, she talks about cricket more than trans stuff now. And, and I think that's the way it should be. You'll get yeah. back to music. Yes. Yes. Yes, or art. Or visual art. Yes. yes. Another yeah. question. Down the front here. Statement. Oh, no, no statements. No, no, it's just an affirmation. Oh, an affirmation. So, thanks. Um, okay. I've got three kids and they're teenagers now, but when they yeah. were small, I'd drive them to school and it was so calming to hear your voice on the radio. Oh, thank you. And we'd be driving along and, and the kids would say, oh, I changed the station, this is boring. And I'd say, no way, listen to this lady's beautiful voice. It's so <laughs> oh, calming. thank you. And so then when you left, it was like devastating, but now oh. I know what the reason was. Yeah. And I've still got the radio on in the car, and the kids still say it's boring, even though I do have a viola player in the family. Oh, great. Yeah, and he... Fantastic. Uh, he whinges about Classic FM as well, but uh. <laughs> you should know better. <laughs> but oh, well, thank to, you. I just want to thank you. Thank you for your affirmation. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. How important is the new voice? Oh, very important. Yeah. Same oh, yeah. accent. The accent hasn't yeah. changed. 
It's just lower, yeah? Yeah. Well, that's another thing I was obsessively doing. I've got one of those apps that you tune your instrument to. So every morning I'd, I'd go, oh, and sing into it. Uh, I was like, oh, I'm down to a D, I'm down to a C. <laughs> Hilarious. From the yeah. floor. Down this side, please, sir. Uh, will you end up writing a trilogy? And do you enjoy riding long-distance bicycles after your previous adventure? Pardon? Just give us that last bit. So is there a third book and... Oh, do I still enjoy riding a bicycle? I do ride a bicycle, not so much now, although Charlie and I have got a uh, tandem, actually. That's in the test of every relationship oh, no, right we're, there. We're awesome, and she's a great stoker. Oh, she's awesome. She's not allowed control of the handlebars, but she's a good stoker. <laughs> I can only imagine the balance required. Uh, no, it's, it's very good. Um, in fact, there's going to be, I don't know whether you saw um, Compass have got a series of special programs about sacred spaces. Um, there was one about the arch, new archbishop over in Perth for, for the Anglican Church. Anyway, at the end of April, I think it's the 28th of April, um, they asked me to take part in a program as well. And my sacred space is, of course, music. And so you'll be able to see Charlie and me in our tandem in, the, <laughs> in that program. So, um, look, in, in terms of trilogies, I actually have written a third book. It's a children's book, and it's called Sonam and the Silence, and it's a little... Uh, a little book, illustrated book, uh, for kids maybe sort of six or seven years old, and it's a fiction story about a little girl who tries to learn music in Afghanistan under Taliban times, wow. and how she manages to do that. Yeah, so that's coming out in August with Alan and Unwin. Yeah. Have they been good to you? Is that these guys as well? Yes. They have been good to me. Thank you, Alan and Unwin. <laughs> Another question? Down the front. In Afghanistan, were you female and what was your name? Pardon? Were you female in Afghanistan and what was your name? Okay, so one thing that we don't ask transgender people is what our name was when, before our transition. Um, it's just, it's considered um, quite sensitive and information that you don't really give out to people who you're not necessarily friends with. Yeah, if that's okay, yeah. What's the state of music in Afghanistan now, now that the Taliban... Well, the school is still going, uh, which is great, and they um, are, you know, slowly graduating people up. One of the really hard things about that school is that as people graduate, they then, the best of those graduates become, ideally, the junior staff at the school. Now, when I was there, there were five junior staff who'd graduated the previous year. All of those junior staff, by the time I'd left, they'd all left the country. They'd all um, gone as refugees to America, to Turkey, Germany, Denmark. How's yeah, the state so of that's, school? Yeah, so that's very, very hard. Yeah. yeah. I'm in loose touch with somebody there, but, but to be honest, um, after my transition, Dr. Samas wasn't really interested in continuing any sort of relationship with me. Yeah. And you still dedicated the book to him? I did. Aren't I nice? <laughs> Very interesting. Another yes. question? No, thank you. So the question, I don't know whether you heard um, the woman asked about testosterone, does it go on forever? It does. I have Swiss-made testosterone <laughs> coursing through my veins. Um, I get an injection in my butt once every 10 or 11 weeks, and that will continue for the rest of my life. So the changes were the largest in the first sort of year. They plateau after about five years, and then I have to have regular blood tests to make sure that everything's even. And then the doctor will decide as I age, you know, of course, men, the testosterone levels will naturally slightly decay, obviously not in your case, oh. Dan. <laughs> For us other blokes, our testosterone levels will, will decay. And so it's just a question of keeping my levels natural. Because at the moment, my testosterone levels probably a little bit lower than Dan's. But, you know, probably the same as the rest of you blokes. And... Um, <laughs> 
so it's just, you know, making that nice kind of... How did this become about me? You got the beard. Any questions for Dan? either of us? Another question? <laughs> Up the back, please. Hi, I'm Kerry. Hi, Kerry. I um, lived in the Netherlands for three years, and that was quite a long time. And when I came back to Australia, I saw Australian culture and living here quite differently. It gave me a different appreciation, and um, some things I liked and some things I didn't. I'm just wondering if that happened to you when you came back. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. That's a uh, great, great question. I just have fallen in love with Australian bureaucracy. <laughs> No, seriously, if you live in a country where bureaucracy simply does not work, mm. it is so corrupt that nothing happens quickly. And you come to a country where I know that we have a little bit of corruption here, but nothing like Afghanistan. I just love Australian bureaucrats. Seriously. Are there any bureaucrats here? Ah, I spotted one down the front. Oh, there is one. Is it, She's on holidays. You're a bureaucrat? <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Seriously, a country just cannot function without our civil service, without our bureaucracy. It's so important. And, um, and I just love the, the function of Australia and the open-mindedness. I mean, sure, we have some misogynistic assholes in this country. Um, and, you know, some pretty shocking things that do happen. And, and, and I think that our attitude towards women needs a serious slap, you know, kick up the arse, actually. But still, it's so much, yeah. But, but still, you know, we can sit here and we can sit here without any worry that a gum monal woman, not to be sexist about it, is going to come in and basically spray the joint with an AK-47. You know, we can, we can wear the clothes that we want, we can have the hairstyles we want. Mostly we can go to a university, we can choose the careers and lives mostly that we want, and how fantastic. You know, I think that's always something to be grateful for. And bureaucracy. <laughs> Last question from the floor, we're gonna to go to our politician in the room, Kate. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome. Oh, that you, nope. <laughs> Are you really a politician? Okay. Kate's our uh, state MP for Port Stephens. Oh, great. Good on you. Which we party? have a fabulous bunch of female MPs oh, at good. state and federal levels. Good. They outweigh the men. Yep, good. Finally. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my mother read your book and yeah. she said, I must read it. Passed it on to me. Must read it. I've now passed it on as well. And it's, um, it's all, we thoroughly Thank you. But um, I'm just wondering, in terms of process, and well, actually, I've got a couple of questions, but probably more in terms of the discrimination. Do you do you get that much in your daily life? Are you with social media, and you, do you get it? Do you, do you cop it on social media? No, I don't. I don't do social media. I can't stand social media. Yeah, I just. I used to do a bit of tweeting. There's a bloke on Twitter called Eddie Ayres. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, I do so have. <laughs> I do have a Twitter account. Yeah, but you don't. don't but use I, it. I just don't use it. Um, I don't do Facebook. I mean, again, I've got a Facebook account, but mostly so that I can access other things. Like there's a string teachers page, which is actually very useful for getting work and stuff like that. Um, so you don't get trolled then? Is there much discrimination? Uh, no, no. I, I personally don't. But I know that I'm very lucky in that regard. But I don't necessarily put myself out there. I'm incredibly lucky because I know that there is a lot of crap that goes on. But look, you know, I've got a job. Um, I work on the national broadcast. You know, when I was um, uh, first um, considering transition, and I knew I was transgender, but considering transitioning um, quite a few years ago now, two partners, two lesbian partners, they both said to me, you, if you transition, you will always be on the outskirts of society and nobody will, will ever love you. You'll be, you know, shoved off to the side. And, I mean, I don't want to sound arrogant or something, but really, I mean, hello, how wrong could they be? You know, we I, love I you. feel... Well, look, I, I feel loved. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. You know, I really do. Um, 
and I think that there, there are always going to be people who, who get angry with transgender stuff, but I think a lot of anger is to do with not understanding something. I think for many people, anger is the first place that they go to if there's a sense of frustration of not understanding something. So that's one of the things that I, I try to do. I try to explain transgender stuff so that people can take the anger away and go, oh, actually, this is a medical conditioning condition. You know, I see it as like um, having uh, type 1 diabetes. You know, it's something that I have to have regular um, medicine for, regular treatment. I have to look after my body. And, and that's okay, and I can go forward and, and lead my life. Um, but I, I do know that I'm, I'm very lucky that a, a lot of people have to put up with a lot of shit. Yeah. Do yourself a favor, buy the book if you haven't already. I'll let you know, there's a playlist at the end. I wish I'd known at the beginning, Eddie. That's my oh, only sorry. criticism. I yeah. took notes of every song you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I read this book very slowly. Not only was I taking no, notes, hang on but minute, today... Dad, give, me, give me the book. Give me the book. Let's just have a little look here. It's at the back page, I can tell uh, you. No, no, no. But if you had looked here, uh, contents... I should read the contents page. Look at the contents. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Every time you mentioned a piece of music, I grabbed Spotify and I read along to the book with the pieces you wrote about, from Beethoven to Elga to Brahm... I fell in love with Arvo Part. I'd never heard of him. Haven't yeah, stopped he's listening. Great, yeah. uh, I've sat and listened to Babrak Wasser's Afghan national anthem yes. that you mentioned in the book. Yes. Ustad Shefter's Afghanistan children's anthem, all yes. on YouTube. Yeah. And for the last few chapters, I listened to traditional Afghan music. I did exactly as you said. I listened immediately to Talis Suspem in Alium. Yes. And it is an incredible piece of music. Mm. You can find out in the book why. Would you please thank my guest this morning, Eddie Earl. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dan, thank handshake. you. Yeah, gentle handshake. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2018 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Join us in 2019 from April 5 to 7 and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.